Is your Bible open automatically to Romans? Yeah, mine does too. I, I can't even find 1 Corinthians. Oh, here it is. Oh, there it is. Okay. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read you verses 1 through 20. This is one from the archives. You've heard this sermon before, but I think it will profit us to hear it again this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Father, in Jesus' name, we praise you for the scriptures this morning. We praise you for the word. Let us treasure these teachings always in our heart and always in this church. Amen. Powerful preaching from the Apostle Paul. You see how easily the fundamentals of our faith can be lost? This is a church that he founded. You can't found a church but on the resurrection of Christ. How are you even the church? How are you a believer? What is it you think you believed? If Christ isn't risen from the dead, we ought all just go home and go about our business. <laughs> There's no reason for me to be here if Christ isn't risen from the dead. Yeah. <laughs> Now, if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? Now, I don't suspect anyone in our small church is going to say Christ isn't risen from the dead. But the same goes with all the essential doctrines of the faith. The inerrancy of Scripture, for instance. The deity of Christ. How do you say that Christ is not God if you believed in the Christ according to the Scriptures? How do you say that the Savior was not born of the Virgin if you believe in Christ according to the Scriptures? There are essential teachings. There are teachings that we believe, that we hold on to. And I've told you many times, and I'll say it again, friends. 
Religion is about death. And I don't think you want to face yours without a risen Christ. If Christ is, is preached that he's been raised from the dead, why do some of us say there's no resurrection from the dead? If Christ is preached that he walked on water, why do some say he didn't walk on water? If some say, if we preach that Christ defied the devil in the wilderness, why do some of us say he didn't do that? If Christ healed the man with the withered hand, why do some say he didn't or couldn't do that? These are not fanciful stories and myths. The resurrection of Christ is an event of history as verifiable as any other event of history. You weren't there when Christ was risen from the dead. Apparently 500 people saw him for 40 days while he taught. Where's the movie? <laughs> I've never seen the movie of the risen Christ preaching for 40 days. I don't really care if there's a movie, I'm just, I'm just saying. The first thing to keep in mind with the Apostle's question is that he's writing to the church. It's almost preposterous. Generally, he's writing to every church. Of course, specifically, he's writing to one church, the one he founded in Corinth. Every professing Christian must come to terms with the essentials of biblical doctrine. We don't add to the scripture. We don't take away. We take it as it is. We preach it as it's written. And we strive to draw out from the context what the true meaning of the word is. We don't add to it and we don't take away. Lest we fall into the category of believers of whom he writes elsewhere that we have a form of godliness, but we deny the power of it. Lest we fall into the category of proclaiming a Christ of our own making, which so many have done, friends. As he wrote to the Galatian churches, I marvel, he said, that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. You're turning away so soon. Couldn't you be true to your own confession a little longer? Couldn't you be hypocritical a little longer so it wouldn't be so obvious? You're turning away so soon to a different gospel, but there's not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. There are a plethora of perversions to our gospel, friends, that we need to be wary of. And so the apostle says to the Corinthians, or to the Christians at Corinth, that if there is no resurrection, there are enormous complications for the whole of Christianity. I would say enormous complications. If there's no resurrection, then preaching is empty. If there's no resurrection, our faith is futile. Friends, if there's no resurrection, our witness is false. Our prayers are unheard. Christ is still dead. The dead are still dead. And the living live without hope until they too are dead forever, making us of all men the most pitiable. Because we believed a lie and based our lives on it. Somehow, just as we see in the book of Revelation, churches begin well. Churches begin well and tend to fall away. And there are five incidents of that in the book of Revelation. I say five. He spoke to seven churches, but two didn't fall away. That's not good odds. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. Churches have to have works. I know your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, that you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not. You know, we have tests for prophets. We don't just believe every prophecy. We have tests. We have the word of God to test the prophets with. That's the standard, right? You've tested those who say they're apostles and are not. You've persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake. And have not become near, not become weary. Nevertheless, 
I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So you did all the other things, but the main thing you left behind. You've left your first love. Friends, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, or in the virgin birth, or in any of the essential doctrines of Christ, his sovereignty, that he's co-creator with God, you've left your first love. The Christ you believe in is not Christ at all. He's some kind of a man-made monstrosity that somehow we've fashioned to fit our intellectually elite, sophisticated mindsets. Whenever you want to sound hypocritical, you say it like you're an Englishman. If we can't hold on to truth, we can't stand on it. If we can't stand on the truths of Christ, we cannot stand on Christ. If we preach a false Christ, we offer a false assurance of salvation. What about that? Friends, where Christ is concerned, truth is power. Where Christ is concerned, falsehood comes from evil. Where the gospel is concerned, truth mixed with falsehood is falsehood. Half-truths do not count with God. Faith is not a decision process. It's a conversion process. Old things passed away, and behold, all things have become new. It's a process. So we too could be cursed with the same intellectual malaise that affected the churches of old, like the church of Ephesus that I just read. We could do a lot of good and great things. So much so we even caught the Lord's attention, and he knows your works, and he knows you have patience, and he knows you didn't put up with false prophets. But you left your first love. In other words, Jesus isn't first place. You know, Jesus isn't the type of God. He isn't the type of Savior that's going to be okay on the back burner. He's got to be on the front burner. And it's not because he's arrogant. It's because he's worthy. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Friends, I've told you, this is Reformation season. This is the time of year we talk about those blessed doctrines of the Reformation where men like Martin Luther brought us out of the dark ages imposed on us by an ecclesiastical authority that had no concern for the, for, the, uh, for the ignorant masses. They even had contempt on them. And he brought us out. Reformation is a reformation of literacy so that people could go back to the word and read it for themselves because if it was perspicacious. In other words, the man on the street could read it for himself and he didn't need some act of priestcraft so that he'd be able to. We can add from the text and he was, or rather we can add to the, uh, what we just read, that he was rose according to the scriptures, that he was seen. He was seen. How do you know anything happened in history? How do you know that George Washington crossed the Mississippi? <laughs> I know that you're laughing because I couldn't catch you like I wanted to. Everyone knows it was the Potomac. How do you know he crossed the Delaware? Because the guy painted him standing up in the boat? Because people wrote it down, friends. I always get a kick at Thanksgiving that the, uh, you know, the, the, the local Indian tribes are going to tell us what really happened on Thanksgiving. I said, where are the writings? Where are the writings? They don't have any because they didn't write. Nothing against them, but they didn't write it down. It happened 400 years ago. How are we supposed to know that your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather told a few people. The Puritans wrote it down. The Pilgrims have a script. We have Mort's relation. We know how many Indians, we know how many deer, and we know how many turkeys were at the first Thanksgiving. They wrote it down. And so the apostles wrote it down. When John was in the cave on Patmos, Jesus appeared to him because he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, like you're supposed to be. And, the, and God 
Christ, the risen Christ, appeared to him. And he said, I'm the, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And the things, the visions I show to you, write them in a book, he told him. Here he is. He's like, he's on Patmos in a cave. He's like, write them. Oh, I, I found something I can scratch onto a piece of papyrus. Write them in a book. Christians are literate people. We read it for ourselves. We preach it for ourselves. We hold on to it. We don't add to it. We don't take away. And we cherish the fact that God preserved this for us down through the ages for our edification. And yet here they are. The Corinthians are members of a church that the apostle himself founded. Do you ever notice as soon as the apostle was away, the mice did play? Now, he knew many of them personally. He personally taught them for 18 months, and now he's been away for some four or five years. See, when he writes a letter, it's because he's not there. I, I think we always have to keep that in mind, you know? He was the most astute mind of his age. Now, I really think, as a student of history, I can make that claim. Paul was the most astute mind of his age. And I'll not stand here today and quibble about that. I would challenge you to name another book, another set of teachings, another doctrinal statement that did more to change the world than the Apostle Paul's writings. I can save you the time. There is none. So put your phones away, because if Google tells you there is one, it's wrong. I would challenge you to provide me with a list of the, uh, uh, rather, with a list of works that remained relevant throughout the generations of man for the last 2,000 years, and which changed society for the better in the way the New Testament did. There's no book that did that. I have a wonderful teaching at home. It's a book by a a Hindu convert to Christianity. You've heard me talk about Vishal Mengalwadi. And he was saying how Christianity changed the world. Here he is, a, a former Hindu in India. But he got saved. And he got educated. He got educated here in the States. And he got his doctorate in theology. And he's a really smart guy. And he's still around. And he's still teaching. And he's still writing books. But he's comparing America, which was born of the gospel to other nations like India. And he said, you know, there's an American dream and it's real. He said, there's no Indian dream. There's no Chinese dream, right? There's no Russian dream, there's American dream. There's an American dream because the teachings of the Apostle Paul, the things you heard Jesus say this morning in the Sermon on the Mount changed people's hearts and they ordered their society around those moral standards. We're losing them now, yes, and we cry out to God about it. But nothing did more to change the world than the writings of the Apostle Paul. Writings like what we have before us. So I'd challenge anyone to provide me a list of a book that did more for society, the society of man, than the New Testament. One proof of the resurrection of Christ is the durability of the religion of Christ. Think about that. How did it last so long if it isn't true? Another proof of the resurrection of Christ is the multitudes of voices from every sector of human society that claim and proclaim a relationship with Christ. Friends, we weren't there, but they were, and they wrote them down. And someone was there when George Washington crossed the Saconic River. No, somebody was there when he crossed the Delaware, right? And they captured all those Russian soldiers because you know why? Puritans didn't celebrate Christmas, right? Not Russian, Hessian soldiers. They were German. <laughs> they were German soldiers. And he captured them all, right? Because they were hungover because they celebrated Christmas. But the uh, offspring of the Puritans hadn't gotten there yet. They didn't celebrate Christmas. They went on Christmas Day. Took them all virtually without a shot. How do we know all that happened? Because men wrote it down. Men that witnessed it wrote it down. How do we know Jesus rose from the dead? Because men that witnessed it wrote it down. That's how you know anything in history. You know, how do you know the great pyramids of there? Have, have, have you seen them? 
Maybe some of you have seen them. How do you know they're there? How do you really know the earth revolves around the sun? How do you know anything? You have to have some faith in, in someone to believe the earth revolves around the sun. I've never looked in a microscope, in, a, a, a telescope rather, and figured that out. You can look in a microscope too because the same thing happens with atoms. Is someone going to say it? You can't see an atom in a microscope now, but no one said it. Friends, how do we know anything that happened in history? It's because people that were there wrote it down firsthand. And they had some integrity. And then you say, well, how do you know this guy isn't lying? Because these other three guys that wrote it down said pretty similar things. We at least have a general idea, but where it comes to Christ, we have a very specific idea. The resurrection of Christ is attested to historically, I think, better than any other event of history. Isn't it a wonder with all the conspiracy theories that have arisen since the tomb was found empty? All Rome had to do was produce a body, and they couldn't do it. Habeas corpus. I'm surprised, I'm really surprised they didn't like find some dead corpse and bring it up and say, no, this is the Christ. They did everything else to try to deceive. All they had to do was show that the guards at the tomb had accomplished their purpose and the whole, and the whole of Christianity would have gone unsubstantiated for the rest of time. It's nothing less than a miracle of God that the most powerful empire on, on earth could not hold back the tide of the gospel. They put two guards at the tomb and they couldn't stop the resurrection. The biggest empire on earth, the biggest earthly power there was. They even bribed the guards, remember? They bribed them to say that Jesus' friends came and stole the body away while they slept. In other words, the, the guards had to admit they fell asleep, which is a capital crime. They could be killed by the army for falling asleep on duty and letting the risen Christ escape the tomb. But they said, don't worry. The chief priest said, don't worry. We'll make it good for you. In other words, go proclaim how dishonorable a soldier you are, and we'll make it good for you. None of it worked. It's nothing less than a miracle of God that the most powerful empire on earth could not hold back the tide of the gospel, and it was itself eventually conquered by the gospel. And so the gospel emerged more powerful than the armies of Rome at last. So what is the gospel, friends? It's a simple story told among a few simple, humble, socially insignificant people. I mean, you need fishermen, you need tax collectors, you need carpenters, you need all these guys, but socially in, the, in that age in the Roman Empire, they were pretty insignificant people. They weren't writers, they weren't journalists. They're better than most of today's journalists, but they weren't even journalists. Isn't it a wonder that the proof of the resurrection was put first in the mouths of women? Imagine we have all the power of Rome and of the Sanhedrin of Israel to oppose the identity of Jesus as the Christ and the reality of the resurrection. And the Lord God decided to show himself first to a few insignificant people, women, who by virtue of their gender were not allowed to speak in a court of law. He didn't care. I'm speaking of the so-called three Marys from Matthew twenty-seven fifty-six. Look it up. It was Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Josie's, and the mother of John and James, who was also Mary, we know from other verses. It's obvious that God is not interested in making his case to establishment leaders. He didn't go to, he went to fishermen. He didn't go to men in high office. Isn't it just like God to show the world that the religious and pol political leaders of the time have a greater problem with a risen Christ than they ever had with a dead one? They thought the crucifixion was the answer to their problems. Friends, it was the answer to our problems. It's not an answer to their problems. It's an answer to the problem. The real question for the human race is not who will rule us in the end,
or rather in the here and now, but who will rule us in eternity? Who will rule us in eternity? But as for the resurrection, you know the story. The stone was rolled away. The body somehow disappeared. And there we have so many hysterical theories as to what might have happened. Why do such theories even need to arise? Why was it so necessary to disprove what had been so long predicted? Why was it necessary for the Jewish leaders to create and co-opt the Roman guards to deceive the people of the time? Matthew 28, 13. It's really a simple matter to answer these questions. It was necessary to deny the resurrection because then we may live all our lives right up to the moment of our death without acknowledging God. Do you ever have anyone say that to you? Oh, all I have to do is believe? Oh, good, I'll just wait till the end. I'll have fun, I'll sin, I'll do everything I want to do. And right at the end, as I'm dying, I'll believe. As if it can be done that way. That's mocking God, by the way. Why was it necessary for the Jewish leaders to try to squelch this? They saw the power in it if it got out, and it got out despite their efforts. And so, if they could stop it from happening, we could all go on with the illusion that we're somehow in control of our own realities. Right? There is no God. He couldn't really rise. It was necessary because the rebellious heart of man yearns to be a free moral agent who can do as he pleases without fear of reprisal from an all-powerful deity. Boy, does the world hate that there are people who will attest with all of their heart that they will pay for their sins. That is a hated belief. That's the dream of the atheist, to go through your life without a wrathful God looking over your shoulder. It's the hope of the humanist. It's the great desire of the secularist. It's the vengeful spirit of the unrepentant sinner. To say there's no resurrection is to shake a fist at God Almighty and to say, my sins are my business. Now Paul asked the question of the Corinthians, if Christ is preached that he's risen from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? He asks it of them. I'm asking it of you. I'm asking it of our culture. How do some say there's no resurrection from the dead? Why do some feel the need to deny the resurrection of Christ? It's because you know that a living Christ has implications for you. A living Christ has implications for you. Think about it with all of the railing Christ did about sin and about the Pharisees and woe unto you hypocrites. Think of all that. Think of how pleasing it was to see him silenced that day at the cross and yet he wasn't silenced not even then they wanted a dead Christ because if Christ lives you have profound responsibilities and what about your children what will you tell them if Christ lives will you tell them that Christ is not risen Will Resurrection Sunday be just Easter Sunday, as every unbeliever would prefer? Is it the acknowledgement of the most pivotal, provable, attestable event in history? The resurrection of Christ. Is it eternal life with Christ, or are chocolate bunnies and Easter eggs the greater gift? You can see that this sermon was first preached around the Easter season. I've heard that in this moment of COVID-19 quarantines a couple of years ago, that the Easter Bunny was actually upgraded to essential personnel. Remember that? Remember that? Can you imagine standing before Christ, the living judge, in your Easter Bunny suit and trying to explain yourself? No, 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 no. This is what it's about. Depart from me, I never knew you. And you surely don't know me. 
I'll offer you a few reasons why some of us who are other, otherwise not hostile to the gospel or to religion or to religious people in general still openly deny or put no real confidence in the resurrection. The first is for the Corinthians. I tried to show that the Corinthians lived in a time of competing philosophies. These are the great philosophers of the world, right? There were no great schools of philosophy in Corinth, but there were in Athens, and they were happy to borrow them from other Hellenized peoples. Remember when Paul went to the marketplace in Athens, and there were certain Stoic and Epicurean philosophers there who never heard what Paul had said about God, and they were curious. You know Epicurean Epicureans are? They're people who followed a philosopher called Epicurus. I had to study him in, in college, Epicurus. They were deniers not only of life after death, but of any spiritual element to life whatever. They were like the Sadducees, the Epicureans. They were hedonists. They lived for the moment. They lived for the flesh. Life for them was merely the physical, and so to satisfy physical desires was the ultimate purpose for life. A second school was, of thought was Stoicism. It was founded by a man named Zeno of Citium. They denied the physical resurrection. So really for them, a missing body who was seen alive by so large a group of witnesses was a serious problem. There were others. There were the Gnostics. There were the Judaizers. There were the Sadducees who all held alternative views of life and death in a life hereafter. The Gnostics, the Judaizers, the Sadducees, put them all together, friends, and you have the Roman Catholic Church. You have the Gnostics, who have a strange view of transubstantiation. You have the Judaizers, who believe that you are saved by your works. You have the Sadducees, who believed in a priesthood. And a priesthood always becomes a corrupt priesthood. And they all held alternative views of life and death and a life hereafter. And they all opposed the Christ. And so I would postulate to you today that the Corinthians denied the resurrection because it was not intellectually sophisticated to accept such things as fact when so many smart people denied it. The wise of this world, my friends. The philosophy professors and academicians saw themselves as too wise to accept the foolish Jewish fable. And they did so with such soaring rhetoric. Friends, the Greeks invented the rules of rhetoric. The Romans perfected them, and I have no doubt that such men crept into the church of Corinth and sowed these doubts among those who were less equipped than they to present cogent arguments. These were educated people, friends. They were sophisticated, friends. They were, worst of all, impressive when they spoke. I would also suggest that they waited for Paul to leave before they came in with their agendas. You know, one thing smart people know is when there's another smart guy in the room. They know that right away. So they waited for Paul to leave. I really believe when the apostles away, the mice did play. They did not want to contend with Paul who wrote to one church, beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And so that's my theory regarding the Corinthians. My theory regarding modern-day skepticism is like it, but with one subtle difference. Today, people don't speak so much about philosophy, do they? They speak about science. The man on the street does not care to be associated with Plato or Aristotle. Probably never heard of them. Much less Russell or Skinner or Skinner or Rogers or Nietzsche. Most of us do, however, want to be seen as children of science, don't we? We don't want to be told that we're in the dark ages about science. We're afraid that if we accept the resurrection, which is the end of the gospel, then we must accept creation, friends, which is the beginning of the gospel. 
And if we accept creation, then we must acknowledge a creator. You know people that never give God credit as a creator still use the word creation? Can't they come up with their own word? How is it a creation if there's no creator? And if there's a creator, then he's by definition all powerful because he, look at all the stuff he made. <laughs> out, of, out of nothing, right. So we retain a bit of our social sophistication to remain skeptical about such things. In other words, we know there's another smart guy in the room, the Apostle Paul. So we're just going to show skepticism. We're not going to say he's wrong because if he can prove us wrong, then we look stupid in front of our friends. And we can't have that because that would be called humility. Let me first say that evangelical Christianity has contributed more to science and medicine than any other tradition in history. I'm not only a great believer in a proper use of the scientific method to test hypotheses and explain reality. I have personally benefited from the great advances in modern medical science. Some of you have as well. I've done some hospital time, and suffice it to say, I've had some life-improving work done, even life-saving work done, as you know. So I stand in immense awe and immense gratitude for those who were able to administer me during life, or administer to me life-saving treatments. I'll add an anecdote to this. In 2006, I was in a coma after four heart surgeries in the same day. The guy couldn't get it right. He was good. He was supposed to be the best in the world. I think he was, but sometimes we are just human, right? After 24 hours of surgery, he came into the waiting room. Some of you were there. John was there. And he came out into the waiting room where they were all sitting up waiting to see if I was going to make it. And he said, I've done all I can. Keep praying. That was my Jewish agnostic doctor. I don't know if he really thought that there was a God or that prayer would actually get his ear, but he knew there was nothing left. Do you ever hear, ever hear people talk that way, though? It's like, all we have left is prayer. Has it come to that? You should have been doing that all along. I've benefited greatly from the sciences, and I have great faith in the abilities and the continued work of scientists, and I do believe the Earth and the other eight planets revolve around the sun. And I have to take one thing back. I'm a false prophet. I told you there are no aliens. Now we know that there are. <laughs> Mexico has come through with a couple of mummified aliens, so I have to eat my words. You know, <clears throat> I guess they think... They're the only ones in the world that saw E.T. I, I don't know. Have you, seen these? Uh, have you seen these things? They're presenting these little mummy guys as thousand-year-old aliens. They look exactly like E.T. They have the long head, the flat face, the long finger, the skinny, skinny body. And they all want to go home. No, you guys haven't seen this? They're plastering it all over the place. They're telling us these are aliens. The place where I would differ from so many of my contemporaries and the place where every Christian must depart is in the area of spiritual realities, friends. Science has no voice in this arena. The scientific method doesn't work on the spirit. You ever see those shows where they're trying to catch a ghost on camera and stuff? Did they ever, I've, they're so boring, I can't watch them, but did they ever catch one? I mean, has anyone seen any ghosts? So many scientists and students of science have found it necessary to take the position that because science cannot adequate, adequately explain spiritual reality, that spiritual reality does not exist. In other words, if I don't know it, it can't be true. Science explains the normative, and so miracles which are not normative are flatly denied. The realm of science is to study and to explain natural, physical reality. What the scientist is not relegated to do is ascribe purpose to reality, right? You don't go to the scientist and ask him. You can ask him, 
is there a cosmos? You can ask them, is there a solar system, a very organized solar system of planets revolving around a star? But you can't say, what's the ultimate purpose of that? He doesn't even care about that. That's not even a, in his lexicon purpose. Ask the scientist or the doctor why a body dies. In the seconds after death occurs, the body is made up of the same elements that were present in the seconds before the death. What caused the death? Certainly not something physical, right? Now, a few minutes later, things start to change. But right away, it's the same exact physical mass dead as it was alive. What left? What happened? The weight of the body is the same. The Christian knows that the spirit has left the body. It's the spirit of a man that animates him physically and gives him life. The Christian should know that we are not a body. I mean, I'm up here and my body isn't doing anything that I'm not making it do. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet that Paul wrote. You are a spirit and you have a body. And when the spirit departs, life departs and the body dies. And you can't weigh the spirit. And you can't test it. And you can't draw blood from the spirit. When the spirit departs, life departs and the body dies. But the spirit lives forever. The question is, where? Jesus suggests there's only two places. Other nominal Christian Factions have a few more places, like purgatory. My favorite, limbo. (laughs) The destination of your eternal spirit depends on your handling of the fact of a living, resurrected Christ. (laughs) I made made Katie laugh. So let me prophesy to you today that there will come a time in every person's life where the merely natural physical realities of the world will not be sufficient for you. Nature's a wonderful thing to study. And though our study of it may unlock some amazing secrets, nature is insufficient to explain ultimate purpose. So if nature, if creation emanates out of a perfect storm of mindless cosmic forces, and if human beings are just another aspect of geology or astronomy or accidental biology, then we're destined to begin and end our lives acknowledging that our lives have no purpose, and we were never intended to have purpose. We're just sort of here, and then we're gone. That was a good effect. But the gospel of Christ upsets this whole schematic. The scientists don't like it. The philosophers don't like it. God bursts on the scene and he comes with a message. A message of purpose. His purpose. Man, unlike the rest of the natural order, can study himself. Whatever we might think of natural reality, I hardly believe that anyone I have ever met or conversed with believes that the mountains and the lakes and the oceans are in a state of perplexing self-analysis. Do the trees say with Descartes, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. I hardly believe that after a tsunami, the ocean considers the morality or immorality of swallowing up whole towns and villages filled with innocent, unsuspecting people. The ocean's conscience is not plaguing it after a tsunami. Owls and foxes and fishes and crawly things don't wander or wonder about themselves and their ultimate realities. They don't make career decisions or save for their kids' college fund. They live moment to moment, friends. Birds and foxes and fishes live, friends, they live meal to meal. It's just about survival. The attention span of a goldfish is about three seconds. And so when he's in his little bowl, each curve of the bowl is a wonderful, exciting new reality, a new discovery. And he can circle that bowl many times in an hour. 
and he can't remember where he's been. Each time he swims around it, every curve of the bowl is a new and wonderful adventure. Dogs and cats do not commit suicide. <laughs> I'm laughing because I have a friend. I probably should, it's kind of mean, but he lost a couple of animals, and I had another friend that um, suggested that they're committing suicide because they didn't like him. But dogs and cats do not commit suicide because they have thought about their lives deeply and have come to the conclusion that their meaningless lives are useless and unsatisfying. They're dependent upon humans for their every need. They do not seek ultimate answers. But we do. We may play a part. That might play a part in why the apostle makes this closing statement. Verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Now he's already made the case. If there's no resurrection, then Christ is still dead. Right? That's just deductive reasoning, right? If he's dead, our preaching is empty. More deductive reasoning. If he's dead, our gospel is useless and false. It's fake news. If he's dead, then he died for nothing. No promise, no future, no hope, no answers to prayers. If he's dead, our dead loved ones are all dead. And if, this, and if this is so, then we Christians are, of all people, the most pitiable fools imaginable. That's deductive reasoning. We've lived a lie. The guy on the street knew more than we did about life. Imagine that. I've heard it asked this way by one preacher. Remember when the Pharisees and the Herodians asked Jesus their question on Jews paying taxes to Rome? Remember? And he famously asked them for a coin. And after inspecting the coin, you may remember this, he said, whose image and inscription is on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, basically, then give it to Caesar. Render to Caesar's that which is Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. Had these men followed the Lord's, or the Lord long enough, they would have found that the gospel of Christ really has a follow-up question to whose inscription is on the coin. Whose inscription is on your heart? Whose image is in you? Do you belong solely to nature? Or are you more complicated than that? I think most self-respecting resurrection deniers believe themselves more complex than a rock formation or a crater on the moon. Have you ever wondered why you love a sunset? Everyone loves a sunset. If you buy a condo in a big building, the southwest-facing condos are a lot more money than the ones on the other side. I don't know if you know that. Have you ever wondered why people love a sunset? We know that it's nothing but atmospheric gases passing in front of a burning cosmic globe. What's the big deal? It's just science. Do gases and stars create beauty? Do the stars and the sun and the ocean know that they are beautiful? Are they they artists trying to paint beauty? No. They're just stuff. Material stuff. Or as a philosophy student once asked, as he contemplated a sunset, he said, if man emerged from the slime and a cosmic accident created the sun, from where do we derive the great appreciation of the beauty of a sunset? I'll remember this thought and ask my professor tomorrow. That was me, by the way. It's difficult enough that the scientist postulates the origin of human life. I think it would quite overwhelm him to calculate the origin of love. If we came from the slime in a primordial ooze that was, I don't know, struck by lightning. You know, ever see um, Bride of Frankenstein or one of those movies where, you know, Dr. Frankenstein puts together all these parts and he has, he has to get enough current to go through it to animate the thing that he made? 
So he figures lightning will do it. That, scientists have actually said that's what created life. Lightning hit the primordial ooze, and all the little chemicals there that create life were present, and they became life. Did it zap love into the amoeba? I mean, where does love come from? I mean, even evolutionists love their kids, presumably, right? Where does love come from? If flesh and bone and blood and fats and lipids and proteins came from rocks and a primordial ooze, did the same rocks and the same muddy soup fill that creature with love? How much lightning does it take to put love into a primordial ooze? That's the real question. Friends, love comes from God. It's so ob- it's as obvious as the sunset. The beauty comes from God. God painted that on his canvas so you could love it. And there's something in man that already knows that. And so Paul preached that elsewhere. He said, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead. All of those things are revealed in God's creation. It takes a greater force of will to deny it than to accept it. It takes a willful inner rebellion against our own nature to deny what even the atheist will attest to. Love and a need to be loved. Friends, I know some atheists. But they love people. I have atheist friends that love me. And they want me to love them back. Why? We're all just animals trying to survive. Even the atheist has an appreciation for beauty. How will he explain it apart from God? And so I'll say with Paul, I'll say with the apostles, I'll say with Christ, he is risen. And I'll say what the resurrected Jesus said that day to Peter. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Believe him or deny him, Christ exists You may walk hand in hand with Jesus, or you may be dragged by your hair, but in the end, he'll not be denied. Give the empty tomb another inspection, atheist. Give your empty heart another chance to be filled. For the creator Christ who made you, made you for a purpose. Discover the living Christ and discover what that purpose is. Father, in Jesus' name, we praise you for the revelation of your holy word. And most especially, Father, for a crucified Savior who died for our sins and rose from the dead right on schedule, O Lord. We praise you for the gift of faith that acknowledges our own sin and acknowledges the price paid that day at Calvary. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.